Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia Apostle, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears. We will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast, please check us out at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Oh, and I'm so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, lovelies. Welcome back to the Fat Joy podcast. I'm Sophia, and I'm here with Dr. Rachel Milner, who I'm very excited to talk to. Um, as with so many of my guests, I have been following and resharing, reposting Rachel's content for for quite some time, and I've always been so impressed with how she clarifies and brings clarity to a lot of the stuff around anti-fatness that does not feel clear. Um, so I reached out to Rachel and said, hey, please come talk to me. And she said, yes. So welcome, Rachel. I'm so happy to have you. Yeah, thanks. I'm really glad to be here. Mm -hmm. um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Rachel? Who are you? What do you do in the world? Sure. So I'm a psychologist. Um, I am outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm in private practice here. So I spend most of my days talking to clients and people that I supervise and consult with. And at this point, most of the work that I do is either with folks who are struggling with eating disorders or disordered eating, those who are wanting to heal their relationship with food and body. I would say most of the clients that I see have been harmed in some way by a more weight-centric model. Um, so I work with a lot of higher weight folks who you know, have navigated the traditional eating disorder system or you know healthcare system and are looking for fat positive care. Um, I also spend time outside of work. I have twins who are 10 years old. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so they obviously take up a lot of my time. So when I'm not working, I'm with them usually on some form of a soccer field or tennis court because that's where they like to be. Amazing. Oh, I love that. Oh my gosh. 10 year old twins. Oh, well, we're going to talk a lot about kids this episode. So I'm very excited to dive further into that with you and what it's like raising kids within diet culture norms. Um, but first, I want to ask what your relationship is to the word fat, what your journey has been like towards that word. Well, it's very different now than it was before. And I think journey is such a great way to describe it because I think it's nearly impossible to live in this culture and have come to a place of fat positivity or fat liberation and not have had a journey with that word. When I was younger, fat was something to avoid. And it was 
to be avoided in all of its forms. So you weren't supposed to be in a fat body. You weren't supposed to eat food with fat in it. Like there was just lots of messages around the idea that fat was bad. And that guided a lot of my life for many years. Um, and as I started healing my relationship with food and body and healing from an eating disorder that my relationship with the word fat and just mm. with fatness changed a lot. And there was really a reclamation of that word. And now I really love the word fat and yeah. I particularly love on like my most feisty days um, <laughs> using the word with people who are not in the fat liberation community just to see them squirm. Oh my God. Uh, yes. I love it too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really curious. I want to ask um, when you were kind of starting your own healing journey, did, you're a therapist. Like, did, did you have a therapist? Like what what supports helped you jumpstart that? Because I think, and I know actually just having heard from people that a number of people listening are kind of at the beginning of their journey. And so any, like, here are some things that can start you, I imagine would be really helpful. And I'm always just really curious, like, how did you find your way away from diet culture? I had a different journey than a lot of people, I think, that I was in a fat body in college and connected to health at every size. And at that time, um, I got my hands on Marilyn Wan's book, Fatso, and it opened my eyes to this like whole world out there that things could be different. And it took me a long time to come around to applying that to myself. I still struggled for many years. And my particular journey with an eating disorder took me from a fat body into a very emaciated body. Mm. And I always like to clarify that there are many people struggling with eating disorders who stay in fat bodies, whose bodies don't change at all. And my experience was that my body did change. And I dealt with a lot of weight stigma during that time. There was a lot of people congratulating me on weight loss, even when I was really struggling. And so eventually I was in therapy that whole time um, and was very clear that I wasn't ready to do anything different, that like I was very attached to my eating disorder. Yeah. And I think that's important to name because I think in the eating disorder field a lot, we have this idea that people have to be ready. And it was really important for me that I had a therapist who could hang in with me mm. even when I wasn't ready because yes. part of the work was to get to a place of being ready. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, and when it's not like that, it's almost like furthering the discrimination. It's like, nope, not you, not yet get your shit together, then come back, which actually is not supportive or helpful at all. Not at all. And I had a great dietitian who at one point tried to give me an ultimatum that oh. was like, if you don't do this, then we can't work together anymore. Oh, I've had that and too. Yeah. Fortunately, I was like, 
if you ever threaten me again, <laughs> I will never speak to you again. <laughs> I you. will drop out of treatment. And I am really grateful that she was able to take a step back and reevaluate her approach and did yeah. hang in with me because she ended up being really crucial and important mm. in my healing. But it took from that moment when she tried to give me that ultimatum until the point that I actually started making changes was a long time. It takes a long time. Yeah. And it's so interesting that ultimatum approach is so rooted it again best of intentions i've had this done to me multiple times through my life but all it does is evoke shame which we know now from Brene brown thank you very much that shame as a motivator does not exist and the more people can hear that the better so i'm so glad you named that as well yeah i will never understand this idea of not being willing to work with the people who need help the most oh. And that happens really often in this field. And I think, like you said, best of intentions and a lot of harm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and also, thank you for naming that it takes a long time and probably various levels of support. Do, do you, I always ask this and it's funny. And I ask because I don't think I know the answer, <laughs> but was there a moment where you're like, oh, oh, I've like, maybe not fully done the things. I don't know if we can ever fully heal from diet culture while we are being harmed constantly by diet culture. But was there a moment where you're like, oh, okay, I've gotten to where I want to be. Did you have a bit of an aha or a, a transition moment that you can remember? I think for me, it was deciding to have kids. Oh, yeah. Um, I think when I was pregnant, I was still seeing the same dietitian and told her throughout my pregnancy that I was only eating because I was pregnant and that once I gave birth, I was going to go back to my eating disorder. And then I had these two little babies and was like, I'm committed to living now. Like there isn't oh. space for an eating disorder if I'm going to exist in the world. And I think that was a real shift for me. And it doesn't mean that everything magically got easy or there wasn't still a lot of struggle, but it was a different kind of struggle because there was a commitment to life that I didn't have before. Yeah. Oh, that just totally brought tears to my eyes. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Um. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just taking a moment. I'm so moved by that. That's yeah. That commitment to life, which is so robbed by, I, I've struggled with binge eating disorder my whole life. I consider myself, it's still always present, but I now know how to manage it. And so that I don't swing from binging and to, to, to starving. Basically I don't kind of yo-yo back and forth like I used to for years, decades. Um, and part of that, I was so helped by therapists more, not because they were um, actually very informed at all about <laughs> um, living in a fat body and having an eating disorder. They were not anti-diet. I didn't even know what those terms when I was going to therapy for my eating disorder, but um, it was that space to 
just be able to name it and talk about it because it was this shameful secret I hid for decades since I was 12, basically, until I was probably early 30s. So um, that safety, that space that therapists provided is, um, oh, is incredible. And I'm really curious, do you feel like, I think the answer is yes, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you feel like because you live in a fat body that your patients feel safer with you? I think so. Yes. I think for most of them, yes. I think that a conversation that I sometimes have with clients who are afraid of weight gain is what it's like to work with a fat therapist when they're weight suppressed or really struggling with the idea of gaining weight. Um, But I think that for the vast majority of clients who are navigating their relationship with their body, there is safety and comfort in working with a fat therapist. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I'm just imagining, I've never had a fat therapist and I just imagine it would feel so lovely to, yeah, to feel like they get it. They understand. Yeah. Um, Rachel, I am so curious to talk to you about kids. This is a question that comes up all the time amongst my friends. Um, when I became a stepmom almost four years ago, this was so present in my mind because I had not been around kids in like a like a sustained way like I am now and I had not realized just how deeply and profoundly and constantly kids are being exposed to diet culture like when I first met my two step kids they were 8 and 11 and I remember, I'll never forget this moment. Like one of our first, we'd moved into our house and had a first, like we'd had dinners, but this was like, you know, first like kind of family dinner in the new house. Oh my God. They looked at the, at eight and 11, looked at the labels of every bit of food and were pointing out the sugar, the grams of sugar per item to me. And I was just, I, I, I mean, I didn't even know what to do. I had never, like I'd never seen that before and the fact that these kids were like analyzing for sugar count and this is obviously not from my well I shouldn't say obviously this is not from my partner's side this is from their mom who is deeply invested in diet culture and the stuff that they were saying and there was like well I can't have another cookie because it's got like 30 grams of sugar blah 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 and I was just like wow what is happening and then of course I'm like then you step mom I'm like okay well how do I handle this and And it's taken, I mean, I will say it probably took a year of gently and sometimes not so gently saying, you know what, guys, let's not look at food labels. Let's pay attention to our bodies. What do our tummies want? And I will say, I'm very happy to say now about three and a half years later that they don't look at the calorie content or sugar content or carbs or any of that of food labels anymore. They'll still ask, can I have a second thing? I'm like, well, what, is, what does your body want? Like you give yourself permission around food. What would you like? Yeah, I think I want one. Or oh, I know what, I'm pretty good. You know, and so, but it has been shocking to me how every, they're on their devices, like all kids, right? Um, but all their social media is filled with stuff. Like my um, my 11-year-old, he's 11 now, um, 
is obsessed. <laughs> I don't know if your 10 year olds are with like Dwayne, the rock Johnson and John Cena and all these guys. He's very into like bodies right now and male, ma very hyper-masculine bodybuilder bodies. And he's always like, he'll say, to me, I was taking him to soccer the other day. Again, I also spent a lot of time in the soccer field. Um, <laughs> It was, uh, oh, do you know, I saw that Dwayne The Rock Johnson on his cheat day eats 13 pancakes. Isn't that crazy? I'm like, well, you know, maybe if Dwayne The Rock Johnson allowed himself to have a pancake or two a day, he wouldn't have to eat 13 on one day. And my stepson was like, no, cheat days are good. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, you, it's just overwhelming. They're just constantly bombarded. So please help us. Help us figure this out because it is, I get so mad and it's not their fault, but I just want to yell, which it does nothing. So I don't. And then anyway, it's just, it's such a big ball of messy yarn when it comes to kids and them being so deeply influenced. So what do we do? How do we hold this space as anti-diet parents, especially when the other parent is doing the opposite? What do we do? <laughs> yeah, it's so hard. Diet culture is everywhere. It's so insidious. And as much as we want to protect our kids from it, there's no way to do that. Our kids walk out of our homes and they are going to be bombarded with messages of diet culture and anti-fat bias. I think what we can do is make sure that when they are with us, it's a safe place where their bodies will never be shamed, where their choices in food will never be shamed, where they know that they're not going to be told that there's something wrong with them. And our homes can be a place where they see fat bodies in positive ways. We can make sure that we have books and artwork and read things and that are all fat positive so that there's a space for them to be exposed to fat liberation that they're not going to likely get outside of our homes. Yeah. Or in the schools. I mean, one of the kids came home with an assignment from school, taking an unhealthy food and making it healthy. So right away in grade, I think this is last year, grade five, being set up for that food dichotomy, good versus bad. And so he took poutine. He's like, I put broccoli on it. Now it's healthy. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, and the last thing these kids want is for me to sit down and be like, all right, or, or their dad, right? Like, like, okay, so let's just break down what happened. Although we do when we try and we're noticing that over the years, like stuff is getting through. <laughs> <laughs> but it it's does. so slow. It's so slow, it's Rachel. Slow. <laughs> it's slow. It's tough and those conversations matter. I think that the more we talk to our kids about this stuff, even when they roll our eyes at us and they're, they don't want to listen, they're still hearing it. Yeah. You know, it's still in there somewhere. And I think that information is going to be something they can access as they navigate this world and all of the messed up messages around bodies. I think especially when our kids are younger, we have more influence. And we, I think, especially with schools, I love the like opt-out option. And we did a lot of opting out when my kids were younger. They're in fifth grade now. 
And even in preschool, I had to opt them out of things because the preschool, like a local hospital does like a, you know, come to school and teach about, you know, heart health. And I'm like, what actually happens in this? And of course, there was weight stigma and messages about food that I didn't want them to be exposed to. They had a dentist that came to teach the kids about brushing their teeth. And I'm like, tell me more. And of course, the dentist is going off about sugar. So Mm -hmm. opting out was a really great option for us. And, you know, I think when kids are younger, the schools tend to be pretty respectful of that. Um, I've opted my kids out of being weighed at school in Pennsylvania. There's like our state requirements are that kids are weighed and their height is taken in school and I opt them out of that so they don't participate in that. Um, When I've seen books sent home that are fat phobic, I've contacted teachers and said, my kid's not doing this or they're not going to do this assignment. Um, I've had to call the school to let them know that my kids can get at their cafeteria it's like the rule is that you can buy like your main lunch and a snack food what they consider a snack food and that that's it and I'm like they can buy more than one snack food like it's fine and they can eat it in whatever order they want and they don't have to eat what they don't want but that's required phone calls and you know emails and all of that i was just gonna say okay so i'm so curious about the impact of all this extra labor on you and really curious what you hear from your kids about being opted out so let's start with you like the because that's a lot of labor even as you're saying and i'm like wow first of all that that depends on a school being communicative about what they're actually doing which hmm, i would say our school district is not that detailed so we wouldn't even know until after that's what happens all the time um and then i'm so curious if you've experienced pushback are you like that mom who like calls (laughs) and have you experienced any curiosity has anyone ever said oh rachel's an expert on this maybe we should pay attention so what's it like for you having to do all of that stuff yeah i think a lot of this is connected to privilege you know, I'm a psychologist. When I write and sign something, Dr. Milner, people tend to listen. Yeah, I know the system, so I don't need the school to communicate a ton because I already know what's happening in these environments because of the work that I do. So there's a ton of privilege in being able to do this labor. I really love writing letters for clients, um, either on behalf of their kids or when I see adolescent clients. I'm very happy to write letters, opting them out of things. And usually schools, again, if it's signed by a psychologist, are willing to respect whatever the boundary is. Um, So I think the effect on me is minimal because of privilege. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Has anyone gotten curious and been like, oh, tell us more. Maybe we should adjust our curriculum. Has that ever happened? Yes. The school's been very receptive. And I think, was it last year? Maybe the year before, um, I had a teacher reach out who was very curious and was talking about their own children and navigating the relationship with food and 
their home and wanted to know more. So that was great. I had a teacher call once where they were not certain if an assignment was going to be okay for the students and wanted to run it past me. So I definitely have seen teachers get curious because I think like so many of us, they don't mean to be doing harm. They just don't know. Yeah. And so some of them are so deeply invested in diet culture that they're not able to consider any alternative. But a lot of them, when they hear that something is harmful, are willing to consider other options. Mm, I love that. Uh, I, I, again, I think I know the answer to this, but did you get paid for that consulting labor? No. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> Um, so my other question was around how do your kids handle being opted out? Do they feel, do they understand? I mean, you've been doing it since they were in pre-kindergarten. So, um, yeah. Do they feel like they're missing out or being taken away from their friends? Do they really understand why? How does, how do you have those conversations with them? So far they have been very on board with it. They understand why. We talk a lot about oppression in our house in general, and they understand what weight stigma is. And so they understand why I opt them out of these things. Um, I also opt them out of our like state standardized testing. So like for them, they're like, great. I don't have to do testing either. This is awesome. So, you know, there's like benefits in having a mom who is like, "Mm, we're not participating in this stuff that I think is harmful. So yeah, I love it. Yeah. So they're very like on board with it. Um, Yeah. They understand why what we talk about in our house is how some people just haven't learned certain things yet. And oh, so that's a good way to frame way it. that we try, you know, I try not, I don't want to shame other parents and I don't want to send the message that if there's a kid at school making comments about food or body that like they're a bad kid or a bad person, I just want my kids to understand why it's harmful. And so what we talk about is some people haven't learned yet. And some people have different ideas and hopefully over time they're going to learn more and then they'll do things differently. Yeah. Um, And we talk about how we're going to have different ideas about lots of things in life and how do you navigate that? Um, Mm. So they've definitely come home with conversations around something that came up at lunch. Um, I did have, I forgot about this, but my one son, this must have been first grade maybe because it was pre-COVID like all my time is like pre-COVID yeah (laughs) um so it was pre-COVID so it must have been first grade and they had a dentist come into the classroom and I didn't know that was happening so I wasn't able to opt them out and my son came home and he's like mommy we had a dentist in the class and they started to talk about sugar and I didn't think I could raise my hand and ask to leave the classroom. So I just covered my ears. Oh, I was like, that was a great strategy. So, oh, again, tears in my eyes. That is so sweet. 
Oh, wow. I love that. I also love, thank you for the framing around someone hasn't learned something yet. Cause I really struggle um, with all forms of oppression. So we talk about, oh my gosh, we talk about everything in this house. We talk about racism, misogyny, homophobia, like all of it. I'm, oh, I feel like I'm often talking about oppression and yeah. anti-oppression work and how we can live in the world differently um, and climate stuff too, of course. So but what I often find happens, and you actually named it, was this idea of for the kids, especially at this point, the 14-year-old's a little actually shifting and start. She called out misogyny the other day, and I was so proud of awesome. her. She's like, no, you can't watch that video. That's misogynist for this reason. And I was just like, oh, I'm proud to hey. that moment. <laughs> um, but the 11-year-old is still very much in this like, well, is it good or is it bad? This This dichotomy. And so I like you're actually, I've never framed it this way, but I'm going to start this idea of, well, it's not good. I always say, well, there is no really good or bad. It's people's impacts or their perceptions. Everyone believes that they're good. And, you know, we all have a, like, I don't know, like I haven't found a clean way to do it, but this idea of, well, actually people are just learning and they haven't learned this piece yet. That feels so much cleaner than my little tap dance <laughs> that I've been doing. So that's actually really helpful. Thank you. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, what do you anticipate with your kids, but also because you do a lot of work with teens and young adults. So as your kids move into the teenage years, my stepdaughter just started grade nine. So we are like in it, um, both with your kids and your patients. What do you see as some of the biggest negative impacts of diet culture? Like what, what are kids really struggling with as they get into those teens, teen years? I think we know that dieting is one of the biggest predictors of eating disorders. So kids who diet or are restricting their food intake are more likely to develop eating disorders. Um, and for the kids who don't develop eating disorders, they're still navigating a lot of shame in their bodies, fear around bodies changing, around weight gain, a belief that if their body is bigger than their peers, that's a negative thing. Um, I think we see the relationship with movement start to shift. You know, mm, we were talking yeah. about the kids on the soccer field where it's fun and it's play to a relationship with movement that is based more in diet culture where adolescents start engaging in movement more around the idea of burning calories or trying to avoid weight gain. Um, but I think the, you know, kind of core of it is that they lose trust in themselves and their body. Oh, I hate that. I know. Cause then you spend the next decades, if at all, trying to find that trust again. Yes. How do we help them not lose that trust? What do we do? I think we do all the things we were just talking about at home. Yeah. We model what a trusting relationship is with our bodies. And one of the things I like to tell parents is they don't have to do this perfectly and they don't even have to like their body to do this. Like, I think uh. there can be this pressure of like, well, if we're doing this as parents, we've got to be done our own work. And, and not only is that impossible, it's not necessary. I mean, be, of course I want all parents to have a positive relationship with their body, but that's not realistic. And so what I 
tell parents is your kids are paying attention, they're noticing, and lots of these things can, like, if you have a relationship with your body that is not a positive one, don't talk about that in front of your kids. Mm-hmm. Don't ever let your kids hear that. If food is hard for you, don't talk about that in front of your kids. Like, do your own healing work, of course, and have supports, but don't let your kids hear those comments and don't ever comment on their body or what they're eating. Yeah. And those are ways to protect kids that don't mean that parents have to have done all their work. That's such an important point, I think. That I, I think I feel like you just gave a lot of permission, which is that you don't have to have figured it all out yourself. You don't have to be fully healed, whatever that even means. I don't even know if that exists. Um in order to model something different. And, you know, the other thing I wonder if this comes up too, because I've noticed this as we've had um, other members of the family um, be around the kids is other people make comments and I've had to become quite and like step in and be like, um, no, in this house, we enjoy our food. You don't have to earn it. You're not having, you know, you're not being bad. Like, you know, my, um, my husband's aunt. So a woman in her, I think she's mid seventies came and she just was going off at dinner around all the food stuff. And I was just, I was so shocked by it. It took me a minute to like catch my brain up to what my mouth wanted to say. Cause I was just horrified that this was all being said in front of the kids. And then we went to my family and my family made comments on certain things. And I was like, people stop it. Stop it. I just, I saw it in a different way when I had kids in my life. And I think there's something about also not only modeling it for yourself, but setting, and I think what it often requires, at least in my experience, is setting boundaries with other people. Like in this house, we don't talk about food this way. I would really love for you to respect that. And whether that's in front of the kids or you pull the other adult aside and talk to them privately about it, because it really, like, I don't know if you have this, but I have these moments where adults in my life growing up would just drop a comment and it's seared into my brain 40 years later and it contributed. And I just, I I want as few of those as possible in these kids' hearts that they have to carry for the rest of their lives, you know? Absolutely. I think those boundaries are so important and because diet culture is everywhere, often the boundary setting is something that happens again and again and again. And for the most part, I like my kids to hear me set boundaries. I think it's good to model boundary setting in general. I love that, yeah. And I think it's helpful for them to have that message be reinforced that these kinds of conversations around food and body are not something we're going to engage in and that they're not helpful for anybody. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Oh, I feel like I'm learning so much from this conversation, Rachel. I'm so glad. (laughs) The other thing that I'm so curious to talk about, because I imagine this comes up in your conversations with people, especially if you're working with people with eating disorders and perhaps need to have medical stuff done. And this is a question, again, just like the kid question. This comes up all the time with my friends, other, you know, I've had listeners write in asking me these questions about 
how the hell do we navigate this deeply fat phobic medical system when every test, every conversation, every medical professional from like a technician to the actual doctor or a surgeon seems like, I know I'm painting with a large brush, but seems like all of them, I know it's not true, but it feels like all of them are coming in with an immediate assumption around what it means if you're in a fat body and how do we how do we show up in those spaces and also too like again connecting to the parent kid thing how do you protect your kid from being you know um discriminated against as well so like so yeah how do what do we do in those situations because i think the impacts are also huge and we know they are research-wise right like fat people don't go to doctors therefore they get they're sicker by the time they show up which just perpetuates this myth that fat people are less healthy which we know is not true but blah 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 blah. it just all it's this cycle that we got to start breaking so how how do we do that what do you suggest to people um Okay, it's a big question. I know, sorry. (laughs) I think I'll break it down. I'll start with the kid piece and then answer the other part. So you might have to remind me um, to make sure I get back to it. Um, You know, I think what you just said a couple minutes ago about how these comments are like seared into us, that's true with comments by medical providers too. I mean, I can still remember comments by my pediatrician when I was in grade school, when they made negative comments about my body or about, you know, being my weight being too high or whatever. And, you know, so we remember, and I'm not sure that healthcare providers realize their power and how much they impact us. So I think that with our kids and pediatricians, we can again set boundaries mm. and there's absolutely a power differential in the room. So, you know, as a parent, of course, it can be really hard to speak up and it's so important. Yeah, um, We can yeah. opt out of our kids being weighed. We can tell our, par- our pediatricians, these are not conversations we're going to have. We can, like, they have those really great cards to like give to the pediatrician to say, don't talk about, you know, food or body in front of my children. So those are the things we can do. If the pediatrician starts to go there, we can interrupt it. Yeah. And it's hard. It is because I just, even as I'm listening to this and having gone through a series of medical um, interactions (laughs) myself over the last year, as I've been working through endometriosis and fibroids and all these other things, it requires, like, it actually, I w- I've been so aware of my privilege in having those conversations because I am white, I am educated, I'm just annoying and have, like, you know, as my friends would say, I have bad bitch energy. I'm like, <laughs> no. So, like, I just, I'm, I, there is a privilege to being able to speak out. And I know, and again, I hear this from, I've had so many, I've actually, I just had someone write in saying, how do how do I deal with this? Because especially when there is still an internalized shame, speaking out in a like it's almost like the doctors shaming you as a parent, maybe you know, or you feel like you're being shamed as a parent because they're talking about your kid's weight, 
You don't want them to shame your kid, but you're now in a shame spiral yourself. So is there like, I love these little cards and I'll have to see where if I can put a link in the show notes where to get them. But, but doctors like, don't listen. I've had like multiple, you know, so, so is there, have you found, or do you suggest, is there like a phrase or just something really simple, one line in that moment where we can just probably not be fully articulate ourselves because we're in our own you know, in our own emotions, but something that can kind of put up that boundary. What, like, what would that be? So I think it's important as parents that we remember that encountering weight stigma, especially if we've experienced it in the past and we're in higher weight bodies ourselves, is trauma. And so one trauma response is to freeze. So when you're in there with your kids and the doctor starts going towards conversations around body size and you know that you want to stop it and it's like you can't quite find those words, that's a trauma response and that is so understandable and it's not a failure as a parent. It doesn't mean like you failed your children. You know, we can always circle back with our kids. We can always come back later and say, you know, I was thinking about this and I really wish I had done this, this, and this and I'm so sorry that I didn't. So that's always available to us as parents. And what I have found is if you're needing to access like that sort of one liner that you can put up, what I have found works the best is, can we talk about this privately? Oh, and that brings in a bit of a break for our body to kind of like perhaps slightly unfreeze, start to regulate a bit more and then yeah. And so you like, le- you would leave the room with the doctor perhaps. Yeah. Or ask the kids to leave at the end. Yeah. Okay. Ooh, that's great. That line has been more available to people because it's, it's not combative either. Mm-hmm. And it's not, I think a lot of people hesitate to tell a doctor not to talk about something completely because of that power differential, because of a shame spiral that might be happening. Yeah. But a, can we talk about it privately? Still, the doctor can do their talking, but not in front of the kids, so the kids Mm. aren't being harmed. Oh, Rachel, I love that so much. Can we talk about that privately? Such a good line. I just realized the other reason I think I, where my privilege comes from too, is my parents are medical professionals and I worked in their offices since I was like a kid. So I have no illusion about doctors being the be all end all authority. But there is a whole thing that happens to us. And I just really, I think this is important to normalize where, and there's been experiments about this, like the Milgram experiments where, you know, you put on a white coat and suddenly you're immediately in a power position. And so it makes sense. And it's okay. Like you said, that we get, we have that trauma response. And I love that you called it a trauma response because it feels like that. And then to not beat ourselves up afterwards. Yes, which is so hard to do as parents because we're told that we're supposed to do this perfectly, which is like hysterical because we, I mean, I make mistakes every day and I think every other parent I know does too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just don't like to talk about it. So I I love naming that. That's great. Yeah. So now what about for ourselves as we start to navigate and, you know, this, this happens, whether it's a physical, like I (laughs) went for a physical 
And because of Regan Chastain's work, who is brilliant, I'll put the link in the notes. Yes, she is brilliant. Um, and from look, they she put together these like haze health at every size health yes. sheets. I knew that you know my quote unquote high blood pressure. I was like, I think this is the blood pressure cuff not actually fitting my arm for years. So I actually measured my arm. I went in. I'm like, it's 18.5. Inches, centimeters, inches, I get, I don't know, whatever it was. 18.5 was the number in my head. And I went in, this is like a month ago, went into my family doctor. And sure enough, the tech started to put this thing that would not fit around my arm. And I just kind of let her. And I was like, you know, my, if you look at this cuff, it says it goes to 13 inches. Mine is 18.5. So I really, so what I know is that I'm not going to get an accurate reading. What can you do about that? And she kind of just looks stunned. Like, she'd never thought about this before. And I thought, first of all, where's the training? Second of all, oh right. my God, just now I have to like train the technician. Um, and then she was like, oh, there's a bigger cuff right here. I'm like, oh, let's just check out those measurements, shall we? And it was like, I don't know, 16 to or 17 to 25 or something, whatever it was. So it fit. And sure enough, blood pressure, totally normal. Even after doing emotional labor and being pissed off, normal. And so I just, I feel like things like that are just exhausting there are days when I just don't even want to bother because I know I'm just going to end up in an argument that they will never believe. I'm just going to be like, you suck. And I, I fight with doctors all the time. Um, so, and I'm not very patient and I'm not very good at like explaining. That's I, I feel like I'm much more the the fighter. So I still, it's, so it's not the best in those situations. So how, how do we move through medical stuff as adults ourselves mm -hmm. yes so i think i'll start with for so many people who are needing to navigate the medical system their goal is survival and getting through and that makes sense and that is valid and that might mean having to shut down, to dissociate, to go and not be able to do any advocating because the trauma of it is just too much and they're not in a place to do that advocating. And that's okay. Like, yeah. I want it to be different for everybody. I want people to be able to push back. And I think, you know, we've been naming privilege. Like, it's a privilege to be able to do that. It's a privilege to have choice about providers. Yes. It's a privilege yes. to be able to risk a provider not giving the care that you're needing and feeling like, oh, I can go someplace else or I have recourse. And so whatever you need to get do to get through is valid and makes sense. And making that okay for people. Like we judge ourselves so much so as we come away from these situations. So I just want to like co-sign what you just said around like survival is okay. Like it's more than okay. That gets to be your response. Yeah. And then for people who might be in a place where they're able to set boundaries, I think Refusing to be weighed is a great one. Yeah, it I confuses it them every time. I love doing it. It confuses them. I'm like, no. And <laughs> it shifts things right from the beginning. Yeah. And you might get pushback. You might be told all kinds of lies about why the doctor needs your weight, even though they don't. 
And so I think that's a starting place is saying, I'm not going to be weighed. I think uh, we can absolutely say to doctors, here's what I'm here for and I'm not discussing my body today or food. Um, if you have somebody who can be an advocate, I think bringing somebody can be really helpful. And I know that's been tricky with COVID because a lot of places don't allow another person in, but that's where technology is really helpful. You know, yeah. FaceTime, it's have great. Them on the have phone. them on your yeah. phone. And what a great idea. I never thought of that. Because they're not going to be in the trauma response. <laughs> that's the thing. They can speak They can speak for you. Yeah. Oh, I love that one. I'm going to do that next time. It makes such a difference. Yeah. If you have yeah. somebody that you trust to you know, is rooted in fat liberation and can speak up. Yeah. I think that's helpful. Yeah. It's so powerful. I had an experience of that um, this past weekend at a wedding, actually. So not a medical situation, but I was with my my bestie who is very pro fat lib. Um, and uh, there, we were talking to, it was so interesting, a human rights lawyer and all the work that she does um, to ensure that workplaces are safe. And of course, I'm like, what about sizeism? That's not protected. There is so much discrimination, less salary for people of size, blah, 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 all this stuff. And she was like, well, no, obesity, oh, I hate this word. Obesity is a disease. So you would have to do dis you would have to go through disability claims. And I, I went to say something and my, and I could, but I was like, already, I could feel the rage. And my friend knows that I am not good in these situations. So she jumped and she's like, actually, no. And then she just, and she's a straight size woman and she just allied so fucking well. And I was like, oh, this is what it's like to have allyship for this moment and to have this burden shared and not have to be what I imagine I'm perceived at often. I have been told this, the fat, angry woman who is just talking about fatness because she's fat. And I'm just like, I just was so in that moment, I was so grateful. So having that feeling as part of a medical situation, again, why have I never thought of this before? So I'm talking to you. Um, brilliant, brilliant advice for people to get that support. Huh. Thank you for that tip. I don't think a lot of people would have thought of that. Yeah, I'm glad that it's a helpful tip because I think it does make a huge difference. Yeah, and yeah. Even if nothing else, it's important to be witnessed by people who love and accept us. And so even if in the moment the person you have to advocate messes up or doesn't get in there, you have somebody who witnessed it. And so later on when you need to process, you have somebody who was there with you and that can be really helpful. Deeply helpful. Yeah. Because even this is, and there's such great research um, from this book, um, Burnout, where when, even when the stimulus was removed, like the stressful st stimulus, you like leave the doctor's office in theory, shouldn't my body be okay? Shouldn't I be back to normal? No, you actually have to complete the stress cycle. And part of it is that kind of connection with others. There's, it's a great book. I'll include it in the show notes as well. Um, for anyone who's experienced stress, this is a book to read. <laughs> the whole world should read this book by Emily and Amelia Nagoski. Um, because yeah, having someone to be able to process that with you, that is what helps you complete the stress cycle, has your body return to a state of more normalcy, not activated. And then, you know, so you're not having to just be in trauma all the time. Yes. Yeah. Love it. Amazing. 
Oh, so good. This is so much wisdom, Rachel. I'm so grateful to you. Um, now I want to turn our attention to joy. <laughs> we yes. talked about all the hardship, all the oppressive harms. Um, so how, I mean, and you, you work with people all day who are harmed by diet culture and you are also living in the world as a fat woman. So yes. how do you stay connected? How do you orient? How do you do joy? Yeah, it's like, what are we doing all this hard work for to find liberation if joy isn't a part of it? And like any feeling or experience, like if we're going to feel joy, it means we also are going to feel pain and all of it, right? Like they all come together. And I think joy gets left out of these conversations around liberation so often. And so where do I find joy? In fat community? Yeah. For sure. Um, you know, I think that's a huge one. Like just with my fat friends, whether, I mean, in person is great, but um, I really love the water. So, and I'm not a swimmer. I just like to be in the water. Like it doesn't, you know, I'm not, it's not like I'm in there swimming laps or anything. I'm just literally like in the water standing there. And I just <laughs> love that feeling of like my body in water. Um, I find, so like the weather here is shifting from, you know, the hot summer into the cool fall and all summer it's been really hot and now I'm finding joy and watching all the smaller bodied people in like hats and mittens yeah. and gloves. <laughs> You're <laughs> like, this is my temperature now. <laughs> yep. And I'm like, oh, this is great. So I mean, not that I want thin people to suffer, but I am enjoying that like yeah. transition. Um, <laughs> find joy in food. Like I think that being able to eat freely as a fat person that there's so much joy in that. Um, so that's, that's a big one. I, when I get angry, I tend to want to like respond most of the time. And so I do find a lot of joy in like activism and advocacy. Um, so yeah, there's lots of places oh, to find joy. So good. Oh, I love all those. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your joy with us. Um, this has been such a wonderful conversation, Rachel. I feel really enriched. I feel like I'm a little more um, armed in a good way. I never want to be like sword and shield, but I feel like I've got like you put some things in my backpack today and I'm really grateful for that. So thank you for being here and thank you for oh, the important work that you do in the world. Thanks for having me. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. I chose this poem for Rachel Milner's episode because it reminds me to explore my origins, to look at how my life has come together, those connections of moments. This poem is called The How and the Why. 
And it's by Robin Riegler. But mostly I think about love. I think about you. I think about time as the ocean and our stories as boats made of paper. The fragility of our stories, the unlikeliness of love, and the tomboy certainty of a childhood in Arkansas where I swallowed back down my fear and felt things secretly, then not at all. I think about the ocean, the engineering within ocean waves. I feel the technicality of my body as a part of the waves, the pull and suck of the tides, the moon as a kind of kindness, masterminding the landscape. I feel Kaddish, the Hebrew prayer, providing rhythm for just how the living will remember the dead. I swear on my own skeleton that I can see the hidden architecture inside living things in the natural world. I remember darkness. I remember my mother, the way she held her jaw like stone and maintained that rigid grip even as she was dying. I think about her. I think about you and my words as bricks that sink deeper and deeper, as bricks streaming their way back to earth. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on the website at www.fatjoy.life, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please don't forget to check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. Talk again soon.